as I was looking at these first couple of verses of Romans 9, I've had in my mind the idea of what Romans 9 is all about for many, many, many years. Um, I even could kind of communicate it like, oh, this is the chapter about predestination. And as I studied and as I read, I realized um, that, well, so, so the thing I, to bring up is that God reformed my thinking, right? We talk about being Reformed Baptist Church, and it's not so much about one theological idea. It's about us being willing when God speaks to us, when he shows us where we have been wrong or where we misunderstand something, that we are willing to reform our thinking, right? So that we don't just say, well, this is the Baptist way of doing it. We will always do it this way no matter what because, because right? We have to always have our mind open to be taught by the Lord, to be taught by his word. And so, um, so, so the first thing to say then, I guess, is as we look at the book of this, this chapter and just even these few verses, is that we have to be reminded and have to understand once again that the book of Romans is one long book. That we can't take chapter 9 and pull it out from the book and say, this is what we're going to use to prove this or to prove that. And we have to remember that the book is as, as a whole is important. That we don't take part of this chapter or part of one chapter out of the book and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use this to prove an idea. Um, what we're going to do is it, it, we have to remember that chapter 9 is in response to chapter 8, right? That chapter 9 is far more than just one theological idea. But in fact, it, there is so much more going on here. Um, and so, to, to take it and say, well, when I want to talk about predestination, I'm going to go to chapter 9 and I'm going to find these verses that, that help my case or whatever. Um, it's a disservice to the whole book of Romans. It's a disservice to this chapter because this chapter begins this section of 9 through 11 where Paul is trying to shift his discussion about salvation. What is it? See, chapter 8, we, we got this really good explanation of what salvation looks like for the individual. And then Paul, for three chapters, is going to explain to us what does it look like, not just that God chooses individuals, but that God chose an entire nation. And what does that look like? And so he does that for three chapters. Um, and so, once again, to take just one little bitty section or, or one chapter out and try and do something and, and say that it's separate um, is, is not helpful. In fact, it's harmful to understanding what the book of Romans is about, because Chapter 9 is a part of the bigger picture. And even the book of Romans is a part of a bigger picture, right? The Bible is one book written by God that we would read together and understand it um, as one whole. And so Romans is not its own message. It falls in line with everything else that God has been telling us throughout all of Scripture. It's the same with this one chapter. And so my... My encouragement to you, I don't know, I mean, I'm not a big, like, New Year's resolution guy. I mean, maybe you, you know, that might be your thing. What, regardless of whether you like that or not, I, I would say, if you have time um, in the next week or two or whatever, to sit down and read the book of Romans kind of in one sitting, and, and sort of consume the whole thing together to get the idea that Paul is trying to communicate to us. Because once again, we, so we don't, we, can't, we don't have that ability on a Sunday morning, right? It'll take like an hour, hour and a half, maybe two hours, depending on how fast you read, to sit and read this whole thing. Um, and then it takes significantly longer to then kind of dissect, you know, section by section, chapter by chapter, and trying to understand what he's saying. Um, but it is really helpful to just read the whole thing, 
even if you have questions, to not really stop and like spend a whole lot of time in one little part, but just read it all and try and get what Paul is trying to say through the whole book. Um, because what we do every week is just take little bitty sections. So my challenge to you, my encouragement to you is to, to think of chapter 9, to think of every section as part of a bigger whole. Um, I think this is really, really important. So chapter 9 is no different than anything that we've looked at up, up this, this far. Um, what Paul is doing is he is making response to something that he has said that he knows his Jewish brethren are not going to understand. And they're not going to accept very deeply. Um, it's going to be hard for them to understand what he is trying to say. And really, this is what the entire book has been about. Paul will make a statement, a theological statement, about something, about who God is or about the way God works. And he knows that there is going to be a response. And he's no, he knows there's going to be questions about it. And people won't understand what he's trying to communicate. And so he responds. It's almost like he's having a conversation with himself. Um, I wonder if, like, while he was writing this, if he didn't write it down, or, you know, the, maybe, maybe if he had somebody writing for him, and he would tell them something like, you know, back in chapter 1, 116, right? I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. If the guy who was writing that down would be like, wait a minute, Paul, what, but what about the law? Like, what about all the things that it means to be an Israelite, to be Jewish? What about all of those things that we have been obeying for thousands of years, what about that? What you, you're now about to write to these people and say that it's all about faith? And what about people who don't have faith? What about people who don't hear the gospel? And then we know later in chapter 1, he responds to that, right? Everybody knows God. There is no excuse. Everybody has seen his glory. And so he does this, right? He over and over and over again, he says something. He knows what the response is going to be from the people who hear it. And he tries to answer their questions and their objections, he spent several chapters explaining when he says, look, when you, when, you, when you have faith, there is nothing that can separate you from that, right? And he explains that in chapter 8, that there is no more condemnation, that when we are accepted and when, when we have salvation in Christ, nothing can take that away from us. He knows what people are going to say. Well, then why don't I just go on sinning? Why does it matter what I do? Why does it matter if I'm obedient or not? And he responds to that. And so he does this over and over and over and over and over again. And this is what chapter 9 is. It's a response to a question that probably he was asked. We don't know if he was asked. But in chapter 8, we have all of these assurances from God. There is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ. Right? And he's talking on an individual level. And there must have been people who came to him and said, wait, but if all of those promises are true, what about us as a nation? What about the Jews as a group, the Israelites as a whole? If all of these promises are true on the individual salvation level, what about all of those promises that God made to us way back through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, through Moses, right? Through King David, through the new covenant in Jeremiah, all of these things. What about all of that? Are those promises just as assured as the promises that you're telling us? And so he shifts gears a little bit, but he's responding to this idea. What about Israel as a whole? Are they safe? Are they secure? Are they being condemned? Because you get, I mean, Paul knew people, his friends who were Christians, who were Jewish, who, who, who believed in Christ. They knew other Israelites. They knew other Jewish people who didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. 
And so they're looking at the promises of God and they're saying, wait a minute, these don't, this doesn't seem to add up. I know people who don't have this faith that you're talking about, the only faith that saves people. I know Jewish brothers who don't believe that. So are they condemned or not? What is happening with the nation of Israel? And so Paul, for three chapters, explains not only is God choosing individuals, but God chooses groups of people. And so we get this opening line here. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. So he's identifying, right, what he is about to say is something that he has taken a whole lot of time to think about. And not only has he taken a whole long time thinking about it, but he has checked in with the Lord, right, to make sure that what he is about to say it coincides with what God's truth is. He's not just flippantly saying something. He's not shooting from the cuff. He's not just responding without thinking, but he is speaking the truth in Christ. Now, some people have laid a claim that Paul is, you know, swearing an oath. I don't think that's true. Um, I think, well, I mean, Jesus tells us not to. I don't think that Paul has fallen into this trap of swearing in the name of Jesus. He is just saying, look, in the presence of Christ, I'm about to say something to you. And he agrees with what I am saying. Now he goes on and qualifies it a little bit more. He says, I am not lying. And then he does a third level here. My conscience bears witness. Now what does that mean? I don't know how many times I've read this chapter and I've read this introduction. And I kind of just breeze past it like, oh, you know, Paul is, he's making a statement. He's being serious. He's minding to make sure that they know that he is trying to be as truthful as he can. Um, but this is an interesting statement, right? What is the difference between him saying, I am not lying, and him saying that his conscience bears witness to what he is saying? Is your conscience a part of who you are, or is that something outside of you speaking to you whenever you're about to do something? Think about the way that your conscience operates. You've made a decision, or you've made a thought, or you're trying to make a decision, and you hear an exterior voice, right, telling you something, it's outside of you, and the temptation is, well, if, if you know that it's telling you the right thing, the temptation is to ignore it, right? It is something separate from who you are, right? So when he says, I am not lying, Paul is saying, my internal self, me, who I am, is telling you the truth, but also my conscience is telling you the truth, right? The thing outside of us that we know that sort of speaks into our lives, speaks into our mind when we are trying to decide what is good, what is right, what is wrong, the conscience speaks into our lives, and he's saying even that is agreeing with what I'm saying to you. And then he goes a step beyond that. My conscience in the Holy Spirit so part of what it means to be a Christian, see, everybody has a conscience, Christian or not, right? Everybody walking around, they have this voice that's trying to guide them and tell them. And some t before we become a Christian, that, constant, that conscience is corrupted, right? It's not always leading us in the right way. It's not always telling us the right thing in which we should do. But when we become a Christian, 
Our conscience is being trained. It's part of the sanctification process. Our conscience is growing by the leading of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is like weird things to think about, right? What it, I mean, but it's very clear in Scripture that this is what is going on. And if you're thinking, I've never heard this, I don't understand this, flip really quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. It's just the next book to your right. And there is this really interesting discussion and language that is being used about our conscience and what it does and how it works. 1 Corinthians 8, in verse 7. So he's talking about food offered to idols, right? And there is this conflict between some of the people. Some people think it's bad. Some people think it's good. This is the response that Paul makes. Verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who has... Sorry, excuse me. For anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol, eat, knowledge eating in an idol's temple will, will not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. I, how many times did he say that someone's conscience is weak? We don't think about our conscience that way, right? We just think, well, it's a thing that's there. But it, each of us, in our maturity in Christ, our, our, when, when we are first Christians, our conscience is extremely weak. It doesn't understand, right? The reason that they're weak, he says, is because they don't have the knowledge that eating food doesn't matter. Right? Paul says, look, you can eat it and it won't be any benefit to you. You cannot eat it and it still won't be any benefit to you. That's the truth. We understand that there is no food that is going to make us unclean in the sight of God. But there were people who didn't understand that. Their conscience was weak. So what Paul is trying to communicate over and over again with three different ways of saying it is that he is being truthful, that it's not even just his conscience that is agreeing with him, but his conscience in the Holy Spirit. His conscience has been matured by the Holy Spirit, and that is even agreeing with what he is about to say. Because what he is about to say, the Jews will not like at all. He goes to great lengths to make sure that they know that he has done his thought process, right? That God agrees with him, that his conscience agrees with him in the Holy Spirit. This must be something that they don't want to hear. If it was an easy truth, he probably would have skipped all that, right? If it would have been something easy for them to understand, he wouldn't have reiterated this point over and over and over again. He invokes two parts of the Godhead as his witness to what he is about to say. And then he delays again in verse 2. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. That is a weird thing to say when you are about to tell somebody the truth of God. Right? 
When we understand what is true, that should bring us great joy. So why is he sorrowful? Well, this is not necessarily a part of what we're going to do this morning, but it's important to know what he is going to say. Because we don't actually get to the truth that he is, this hard truth that he is going to do. Because that actually starts in verse 6, which we're going to look at in more depth next week. But to answer this question, why is it that he is doing this? Why is it that he is going over, this is what is true, this is what is true. Even God has declared it to me to be true, and he witnesses that this is true. And it brings me sorrow to say it to you because this is what he says in verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all the children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. That's the thing he's about to tell them. That's the thing that he knows they are going to have an extremely difficult time accepting and understanding. You see, once again, in chapter 8, he gives all of these assurances, and he is anticipating, or maybe even was asked the question while writing this letter, what about the nation of Israel? What about those brothers and sisters who are Hebrews, who are Israelites, who are not being saved, who don't believe in Jesus. They're a part of Israel, aren't they? All of, God's, all of God's promises, don't they apply to them? And Paul's response is, not everyone who descended from Israel is actually a part of Israel. And they don't like that. And they're not going to like that, right? That goes, it flies in the face of thousands of years of their understanding of what it means to be the people of God. He is about to give them an extremely difficult truth. So we understand the problem. We're going to dig into it next week, right? We understand why he is doing this. And then Paul makes a statement. Again, showing his anguish, verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Not about, I don't know about you, but I have read that statement incorrectly my entire life until like this week. Um, I have always read that statement without reading the word could. It's important. Right? Words are important. We, 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 if, we, if we read quickly, if we read too quickly and we miss words, it drastically changes what the Bible has to say. I have read this verse wrong my entire life. And I was so glad that this week as I reread it, and I was reading it carefully and I was studying and trying to, you know, get, getting ready for this morning, that God made that word stand out to me in a huge way. You see, what I always thought Paul had been saying 
This verse, I've read it, I don't know how many times, it's been in my mind, it's always caused a problem for me, because the way I read it was, I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off for Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. How many of you have understood that verse in that way, that Paul is actually wishing that this were true? I I mean, until like three days ago. I have always read this, I've always understood this verse to mean that that's what he's saying. That he actually wishes that this would be true. And at face value, it almost seems a little bit noble, right? That he would wish something like this. But when we really think about it, if you think about it, like that is his wish, to me it seems far from noble. In fact, it actually seems opposite of noble, and it even seems a little bit blasphemous to think that Paul would say, look, God, I know what your will is, but I want my will to be done over and above yours. Your will is that some of my brothers would not become Christians, would not believe in Jesus, would not believe in the Messiah, but my wish is that even though you chose to save me, my wish is that I would not be saved so that they would all be saved. That is asking God to do the opposite of what he has already done. And if that is the way the verse is read, I think there are serious problems. But thankfully, smarter men prevail. People who wrote books, people who wrote commentaries on this pointed out to me um, as I was reading, as I was studying, that that is not what Paul was saying. Because the word could is there, and that word changes everything. Now, what's really important is, see, what Paul does, right? The book of Romans is kind of like a symphony, right? There is this motif. There is the main, there is the, the, the main idea. And then Paul is constantly just like going off into all these directions, right? He gives you an idea. And instead of like flushing it out completely, he starts down the road of explaining it. But he's like, well, wait a minute. But let me explain this. And let me go this way. And let me go this way. And then, and then he'll return back to it. And by the time he returns back to it, sometimes we forgot what he was even talking about. Right? Verses 4 and 5 are sort of a diversion from what he is trying to say in verse 3. So if I can help to make this verse more clear, let's read verse 3 and then immediately go to verse 6. Because verse 4 and 5 are sort of a shoot-off of what he is trying to say. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Does that make, that made so much more sense in my mind. He's saying, I could wish that I was cut off so that all of Israel would be saved, but it's not as though God's word has failed, because it's not all of Israel, not all of national Israel belongs to Israel. Those brothers and sisters who are Jewish, who are not believing in the Messiah, it's not that God's word has failed. It's not that the promises of God are not going to be applied to all of Israel. They just don't belong to Israel. They are not believers. They are not in God's chosen people. So he's saying, I could wish it to be true, but why would I? God's word hasn't failed. Why why would I wish that? God's word is perfectly being Put forth and it is, it, is, it is happening. It is being fulfilled in his presence. All of Israel is actually experiencing all of the blessings that God promised to all of Israel. 
It has nothing to do with who your father was or is. It has nothing to do with what, if you are a part of the tribes of Israel. But rather, do you believe in the name of Jesus? That's what makes you a part of Israel. And so what Paul is saying here, at least I'm pretty confident that this is what he is saying here. He is not wishing that he would be cut off and accursed. He is saying God's word did fail. It did not fail. All of Israel is receiving the blessings from God. I would never wish that because God's promises have come true. Once again, this would be hard for them to hear. This would be hard for them to accept. Because he is saying something that they have never understood before. It has never, well, it's not that it's never been true before. It has actually been true. And Paul is going to show us that. He's going to prove us, he's going to prove that to us by quoting the Old Testament over and over and over again through this chapter. He doesn't just drop this bomb on them and then be like, well, you can figure it out. This is a completely new idea that has never been expressed by God ever before. No, what does he say in verse 13? Don't you know as it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. These are both sons of Isaac. And God chose one over the other. To be his chosen nation. God has been doing this from the beginning. God chose Abraham out of I don't know how many people existed. Not because Abraham was somehow better or special or more righteous or more holy than all the other people on the earth. He just said, I'm God. I choose who I want and I choose you. And he pulls him out of that, right? He reveals himself to him. He makes promises. He makes covenants with Abraham that Abraham doesn't deserve. And Paul is not saying, I'm showing you a new idea. He's saying, you guys have missed it. You had the entire Old Testament to learn that this is how God operates, and you never understood it. And now it's true. And now it's true in salvation, in the new covenant. The Messiah has come. Christ has come, and this same idea is still true. Not all of the people of Israel were a part of Israel. That has always been true. I don't know if that helped you. I don't know if you read verse 3 and always thought that Paul was making this noble gesture. I don't think he is. And I have a hard time saying that. Because I looked at some commentaries. You, get, you guys know me. I, I love me some John Calvin. And John Calvin says, yeah, that's what he's saying. He's saying he wished he could be cut off in a curse. It's hard for me to disagree with him. But I think he's wrong. I think what's happening is what, what I just explained, right? I think that he recognizes that God's word has stood. Even though not every Jewish, even though not every national Jew, not every Israelite by birth by, by heritage, right, by family, by blood, is being saved, it doesn't mean that God's word is not standing. All right, last thing to see this morning. So we don't want to just skip four and five, right? We wanted to skip over them because I think it's really helpful to, to kind of follow his argument without taking this trail. But now, let's go back to it. Verses four and five are here together. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. 
to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. How often have you heard of somebody and someone says, oh goodness, what a shame. They had so much potential. I dare to say that my, my version of that may be more dramatic than yours. I don't know, maybe not. But where I went to high school, a good friend of mine, um, from elementary school up, right? He's, I've known this guy, I knew this guy for a long time. And we get to high school and... You know, he's like 6'3", like 200 pounds, just solid muscle. He's a left-hander, and he could throw a baseball 100 miles an hour. So if you know much about baseball, you probably recognize that when we were seniors, he, was, he threw 102, like his fastest pitch, 102 miles an hour. As a high school kid, he's 18 years old. So right, I'm growing up in Houston. You can imagine that the major league scouts are all over this guy, right? The day he graduates high school, he signed a $1.2 million contract to go play for the Astros. And I was thinking, oh, man, good for him. Like, this is great. What a, I mean, left-hander, right? He goes in. He's going to be a closer. All he knew how to do was throw a fastball. He couldn't throw any moving pitch. He just 100 miles an hour, right down the middle every single time. That's all he ever threw. And you can imagine, in high school, we were the number one baseball team in the nation because nobody could, nobody could hit him. We won every game like 1-0 to zero or 2-0 you know, to zero or something. Nobody could touch him. And he has all this potential, right? And he's throwing and he's doing a good job and he is immediately signed to play Major League Baseball. And I'm just like, he's a friend of mine and I'm thinking, oh man, I'm so excited. I'm ready to watch the first game that he pitches and I keep trying to, I keep, I keep an ear out and I'm trying to watch and I'm, and I'm waiting and I'm waiting and I'm waiting. And then it's three years before he ever makes Major League debut. So he gets dropped down to the, to the minors for a while and he comes back. And so I watch him pitch. Um, I, I remember I was in seminary. I was in this little crummy apartment in Waco. I only lived there for two months. But because I remember watching my friend pitch on TV, like I could, I could explain that whole apartment, right? It was a, I, I, I felt so glad for him. He had all this potential and all these things. And then a few years later, he gets traded to the Orioles. A few years later, he gets traded to the Royals. And then a friend of mine says, hey, do you know our buddy? He just got, he's back in Houston. He just got arrested DUI, and he's going to be eight months in jail. And I said, what happened? Right? Like, and I go and I look and I, I hadn't really followed him. And I, I realized that the poor guy, like he, you know, the major leagues have this three strike rule, right? If you, you, you test positive for drugs three different times, you're out no matter what. And I just think, man, he had so much potential. If he could have just worked harder, if he could have just stayed off of this, if he could have done this or that or whatever, he would have been probably a great relief pitcher and could have stayed in the majors for all this time. And we all know somebody like that, right? With all the potential in the world, and you watch him just throw it away. Paul knew somebody like that. In fact, he knew a lot of somebodies. He, he knew an entire nation who had all the potential in the world to follow God, to be obedient to him. This, I mean, verses 4 and 5 are like almost a summary of the entire Old Testament and the entire history of Israel. Hear it again. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. If there was ever a group of people who were going to follow God, who were going to love him, who were going to be obedient to him, it would have been them. They got everything. 
but they fail. They can't do it. And it's not as if we, if we could somehow be transported back, we would have been okay. The Baptists, right? Ah, if, the, if there had only been the Baptist church, then we would have been able to have all of those things and we would have succeeded. Anybody and everybody in that situation would have failed. It's important to look at some of the aspects that are going on here. Now, you might not think that there is any importance in that he calls them Israelites, right? He doesn't call them Jews, he doesn't call them Hebrews, but they're Israelites. They come from who? Who is Israel? Jacob, who he is once again going to explain to us later in this chapter in verse 13, that God chose Jacob. So it's not just that they are lineage of Abraham, but they are lineage of the people whom God continued to choose, right? It was through Jacob's family, through Israel's family, that God blesses the world. Not through Esau. You know who the nation that comes out of Esau? The Edomites. You know how many times in the Old Testament Israel fights against the Edomites and God curses the Edomites for standing up against his chosen nation over and over and over again? I forget which of the small, but one, one of those really small prophets that we don't read very often, is it's the entire book is devoted to God bringing down the Edomites so that Israel can be glorified. It's not that they are an outside nation. Esau was Jacob's brother. He is a part of the nation of Israel. He is Jacob's, I mean, he, he's, he is Isaac's flesh and blood. And yet, God says, no, not through you, but through Jacob. They are Israelites. They come from the chosen son and not the one whom God despised. So they are Israelites. They were adopted, Right? They are called God's son. We think, when we think of God's son, we think of Jesus. Hear this, Exodus 4.22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Deuteronomy 14.1. You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. Jeremiah 31.9. With weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by the brooks of the water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hosea 11.1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The nation of Israel was adopted by God the Father to be not just a group of people, but to be like his child. Israel was adopted. They were exposed to the glory, Exodus 16.10. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. God is their father, and he reveals himself to them. His glory is revealed to them. They are given the covenants, right? A couple of weeks ago, we went through a lot of those when we were talking about the advent and the expectation of Israel coming, of the, of the coming Messiah and all the different covenants that God makes, right? With Abraham and then with I mean, with Adam and then with Abraham and on and on, right? And he makes it in, with Moses and the law and then with David and the kingdom, 
and Jeremiah and the New Covenant, and there's over and over and over again, God is making promises and promises to the nation of Israel. And we could go on and on, right? We recognize that all of these things belong to Israel. Paul is making a point. Israel was given all of these things because God chose them. He chose one nation over all the others to receive these things. Not so that they would hoard them, but so that they would share these blessings, so that they would go out into the world and share the blessing and the truth and the covenants and the promises of God with the world. They received it all by God's grace. And so Paul begins his teaching about God's choosing with Israel. The last thing to say Like physically you may not be Jewish, but you are a part of God's chosen people because you are a believer in Christ. So all of those things that we just read that are promises to the nation of Israel, they apply to each one of you. Everyone who believes, everyone who has faith in Christ, these things are yours. They are gifts from God for each one of us. Because the nation of Israel is no longer contained in a certain part of the land or within a certain nation. It is for everyone who believes on the name of Jesus. We get adopted. We get to see God's glory. We get to be a part of the covenant. We get to have God's promises that we believe in, that we hold fast to. And this new promise, right, that's coming in the future. That there is going to be a new creation, a new earth, a new heaven, where we will no longer have to deal with all of the, the hurt and the pain and the sickness. We have freedom to access God and worship. We have all of these promises. And the greatest promise of all is that we are saved through the blood of Christ. That when we believe in Jesus... That when we know and, and confess with our mouths that he is Lord, not just a good man who came and died, but that he is God incarnate on the planet who lived a life of perfection, who went to the cross and died and raised again three days later. He was the perfect sacrifice, the only sacrifice. When we believe that, we have the promise of God that we will be saved. That we will spend an eternity with God in heaven forever. These promises, this description of Israel applies to all who believe. So this morning, we rejoice, right? We rejoice that all of these things, that we have access to all of that. It is no longer contained. It is no longer restricted by a physical people group. But it is everybody, every tribe, every nation, every tongue. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. Everybody gets to be a part of the people of God if you believe and confess. So if you are here this morning and you have never done that, if you don't have faith in God, if you don't understand these things, if you don't understand what it means to have these promises, I implore you this morning, I beg you, fall to your knees, ask God to forgive you, and he will. He is faithful to forgive everyone who asks of him. Repent and believe. That is the promise of God. Everyone who asks God for forgiveness, he grants it to them. We have that promise. We can believe in that. 
God's love, God loves you. His desire is to be with you, to be reunited with you. If you are here this morning in sin, don't waste another moment. Don't wait another day, but repent, believe, confess your sins, and ask him to forgive you, and he will. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. You are far more gracious than we can even understand. You are far more loving, more kind, and more forgiving than we deserve. The fact that we can look in your word and see this list of promises, this list of blessings, and we somehow get to apply those things to ourselves is beyond comprehension. Father, we deserve death and hell eternally for the sins that we have committed. But you, in your infinite wisdom, have made a way for us to be saved. Father, we are so grateful that you have sent Christ, that he was obedient, even obedient, to hang on a cross that we could be saved. Father, it is outside of our understanding that you would be so kind to us. But we are grateful. We are grateful for these promises. We are grateful that we can grab a hold of them, that we have the freedom to stand in your presence and worship you and call you Father, Lord, and see your glory. What a beautiful thing it is that you have given to us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.